Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love and your grace. And Lord, just all that, all that is encompassed in who you are. Lord, we can't begin to scratch the surface. And yet, uh, today we'll try and uh, try to live with the right response to who you are. So please have your way with us and guide us and lead us by your spirit, as only you can do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, turn to, anybody? Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. So we go through uh, Old Testament chunk, New Testament chunk, back and forth, back and forth. Just finished Second Thessalonians. We'll do Ezekiel for a little bit, and then back to first and probably second Timothy. So that's how the order of things goes, and someday we'll hit Malachi and Revelation. Then you know what we'll do? Start over. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Everybody there? I've been told that sometimes I spend a long time on introductions. So, now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month. Just saying. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month. As I was among the captives by the river Chebar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chebar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So in all seriousness, I thought these verses sort of set the stage for the introduction, right? And so... Um, Ezekiel gives us this great introduction, uh, but for us it, it calls for a little bit of background. And so um, Ezekiel's a prophet of God. He's going to be called by God. Uh, we'll talk about that, God's specific call to him um, in the next couple of chapters, which we won't read today. Today we'll just read chapter 1. But it's worthwhile uh, to pause and look at this vision that Ezekiel sees of the Lord, uh, and basically God opens Ezekiel's eyes into the spiritual realm to some extent, never completely, but to some extent. And so he's going to describe that for us. But before we get there, Ezekiel gives us the background that I just read. Now, I think of it like this. There's sort of the historical or social background, and then there's Ezekiel's personal life background. All right? So first of all, the historical. He says this is in the fifth year of Jehoiachin's captivity. So, you recall the nation of Israel, they come out, big picture now. Nation of Israel's in Egypt, right? Uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob's 12, Jacob and his 12 sons wind up in, um, in Egypt. They grow to become a great nation. They are oppressed by the Pharaoh. Uh, God brings them out. 
uh, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. They wander in the desert for 40 years. They wind up going into the promised land as God has, has described and had promised for uh, so many years. They take that promised land. They establish and inhabit at that place. They live during the time of the judges, you may recall. And then after the time of the judges, uh, they demand a king, the Israelites demand a king. Samuel is the last judge. And the Israelites tell Samuel, we want a king uh, because um, everybody else's mommy lets him have a king. And so we want a king. And so uh, the first king is Saul, and then the next king is David. That was a, an alertness test. That wasn't a biblical knowledge test right? That was an alertness test. And I got the answer. So uh, first king was Saul, second king was David, right? And then the next king was Solomon. And uh, so you might have gotten messed up because Ishbosheth might have technically been somewhere in between Saul and David. That's what you were wrestling with during that alertness test. Sorry, you were more on it than I was. Anyway, there's a whole line of kings. <clears throat> and during the reign of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the nation is divided into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of, that's called Judah. And um, fast forward a few centuries, both nations become horribly wicked. Arguably, the southern kingdom of Judah had a few uh, time periods of spiritual revival. Uh, the northern kingdom never did. And the northern kingdom was carried off by the Assyrians around 7, I believe, 722 BC. And the southern kingdom remained. The southern kingdom continued after they watched their neighbors, the Israelites, uh, what happened to them, their consequence of their sin. They continue to sin, continue to sin, fall into moral decay, moral decay, and Ultimately, the Babylonians come in and conquer and take them off captive into Babylon. They're going to be captive there for 70 years because the northern kingdom was just scattered. The southern kingdom contained the, the tribe of Judah. What do you know about the tribe of Judah? Who's going to be descended from the tribe of Judah? Jesus Christ, right? So that line from the tribe of Judah must be preserved. So instead of being scattered, the nation of Judah is carried off to Babylon. They're there for 70 years, and then they're going to be brought back and resettle. And we have the resettled nation of Judah, really, which exists uh, until 70 AD when the Romans take them out and then skip a few centuries, and then you have 1948, and then history kind of keeps playing, right? But anyway, we find ourselves during that time when the Babylonians carried off and conquered the nation of Judah, they did it in three different sort of campaigns, okay? The first campaign was in 605 BC. They carried off a bunch of captives. That would have included specifically Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They carried them off to Babylon. They were, they were ministering, or they were captives sort of in the king's palace. And then the second captivity would have been in 597 BC, during the reign of Jehoiachin, and Ezekiel was carried off then, okay? And then the third was finally in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, said, I've had enough of these people, and he basically just decimated them, 
Okay, and so uh, the nation was destroyed. The rest of the captives were carried off to Babylon, and uh, they were stuck there. The reason it's, I think it's, it's significant in the historical context of all this, as we read through the book of Ezekiel, as we've read through Jeremiah before, um, you know, in 597, Babylon comes, and, I'm sorry, in 605, Babylon comes. They sort of thump uh, the nation of Judah, uh, you know, spank them a little bit, carry off some captives. Those Jews that remained said, well, we're just going to, you know, fight back and, and take. They didn't receive it as the discipline of the Lord, even though Jeremiah, the prophet, told them, this is the, this is the word of the Lord, right? And so they, they kind of kept resisting, basically, the discipline of the Lord. And part of that was Jeremiah kept saying, you know what, you guys just need to settle in Babylon. Build houses, settle there. And uh, so God's going to, God continues to preach through Jeremiah's ministry there. God's now going to do it also in Babylon through Ezekiel. Okay, so everybody got that? That's sort of the historical context. Um, the Jews specifically, culturally, religiously, the Jews, even along this way, if you think about it, from 605, then 597 to 586, why did the Jews keep thinking, well, surely Babylon's not going to conquer us, conquer us. Surely that was just like a skirmish that we lost. Surely they're not going to conquer us, conquer us. And most commentators would say the reason the Jews had that attitude was because of religious pride. And I think this speaks to us, as, as frankly, as Americans right? We are a, what kind of nation? A Christian nation. We're a Christian nation. We would say, you know, uh, God established us as a Christian nation. God has blessed us as a Christian nation. And so sometimes, if we're not careful, we can sort of fall into this, well, because God has established us as a Christian nation, we're sort of immune to any kind of uh, punishment from the Lord, Right? We may say that we may not say that out loud or even consciously, but it's sort of a subconscious part of our cultural makeup. Is that we have sort of this religious pride sometimes that makes us think we're immune from any kind of, of chastisement or discipline or punishment of the Lord or consequence of our sin, frankly. Right? Sin has consequence. And national sin has national consequence. And we need to look no further than the nation of Israel to see that. And as that applies to our nation of America, in modern day times, we should heed that lesson. Fair enough? So that's the cultural background. The personal background, so, I mean, sorry, so specifically, culturally, uh, Ezekiel says this is the um, fifth year of Jehoiachin's captivity. So this would have been around probably, so I said Jehoiachin was captured 597 B.C. So this would be around 592 B.C. if you care. And so around 592 B.C., God is revealing himself now to Ezekiel. Personally, he says the word of the Lord came expressly, not vaguely, not I think so, but expressly to Ezekiel the what? Priest. What's that mean? It means that Ezekiel is a descendant of Aaron. 
and he is destined, his, his career path, if you will, is he's destined to be a priest. Now, according to the Old Testament law, you're born genetically a future priest, right? You're a child of Aaron. And you would take that role as a priest, you would enter sort of the priesthood, if you will, at the age of 30. And so when Ezekiel starts out here, now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, that most commentators say that's Ezekiel's, you know, when he's 30 years old. Okay, that's not a historical reference, because the historical reference is, we're talking about the fifth year of the, of the reign of Jehoiachin, or the, uh, the captivity of Jehoiachin. So we're talking about the 30th year of Ezekiel. He's been, he grew up, think about this now, in all you know about Jewish culture, the, the religion, uh, all, of the, all of the aspects of that, you know, the, the temple worship, all of that, all of what it means to be a Jew, all the pomp and circumstance uh, of all of that. You grow up, you're going to be a priest. It's you know, that's, your, that's what you get to do on your 30th birthday. You get to become a priest. And a priest in those days would have been a pretty good gig. Was respected position, right? It was like, you know, you get to wear the cool robe, right? You get to go into the temple. You get privilege, uh, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Sort of, maybe not unlike the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And Ezekiel was about ready to enter into that. Now, he's going to be called a prophet. Anybody that's read more than three or four words out of the book of Jeremiah, what about the respect given to prophets? True prophets, by the way. Is that a good gig? No, it's a horrible gig from an earthly standpoint, right? You get dropped in dungeons and misunderstood and you know, misrepresented and, and, you know, argue with false prophets, and you have to deal with all that kind of stuff, right? So Ezekiel is going to go from having his expectations like, I get to be a priest, right? I've been waiting 30 years for this. Whoops, here comes the Babylonians, right? At about when you're 25, <laughs> you get hauled off, and now you're in this prison camp, it, by the river Chebar, about 50 miles south of Jerusalem, you're in this prison camp, not even going to be able to be a priest really in Babylon, not going to have the respect of the priest, but probably the disregard that happens so often to the uh, prophets. Furthermore, you've got to wonder, did Ezekiel know that Daniel got carried off in 605? Probably. Where did Daniel wind up? Daniel's got to decide if he's going to eat the king's delicacies or not in the palace. Where's Ezekiel? He's in a refugee camp by some river south of town, right? Even on multiple levels, Ezekiel would have reason to be disappointed. And yet through all of this, Ezekiel says, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. The word of the Lord came expressly 
to Ezekiel the priest. In all of his shattered dreams, if you will, in all of his disappointments, in all of the social, political, national, religious chaos that he finds himself in, Ezekiel's going to say, God's in control. I saw it personally with my own eyes. I've experienced it. By the time we're done with this, this book, Ezekiel's, we're going to say, wow, Ezekiel had a lot of encounters with the Lord. Ezekiel had a very personal, intimate fellowship with the Lord. It was difficult, right? Personal, intimate fellowship with the Lord is often difficult. It's often not a good gig. It's often misunderstood, but it's incredibly blessed. And that's the example we have from Ezekiel. So for all of the time he could have sort of whined about his circumstances or talked about his hopes and dreams, you know, really the only reference we see to that is that we know that he's 30 years old and he would have been in line to be the priest. So what's he see? Verse 4. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the, like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Now, I'll just tell you at the get-go, we're going to read some bizarre stuff today. Alright? A bizarre description of spiritual things. And I like that, and I want to kind of highlight that as we go through today. Ezekiel is going to use the word like or likeness 25 times in this chapter. What's that tell us? It tells us that he's having a hard time describing it. Some people try to, you know, maybe draw pictures of this. I like that God reveals himself to us through his word, right? One of the, and I, don't, I want to be careful here, okay? Be careful. Did you hear me say I want to be careful? I want to be careful. One of the dangers we have in our day is that we live in an extremely visual society. Does that make sense? You want to learn how to fix your car, how to, how to change the radiator on your car. You don't want to pay the guy to do it. You want to do it yourself. So what do you do? YouTube it. You, YouTube it. You, 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 you YouTube it. Right? You watch a video of some guy doing it. Right? We live in an extremely, and we just need to be aware of this. I mean, we are born at such a time as this. We live in such a place as this. It is what it is. You know, sometimes I think, man, it might have been cool to be like Little House on the Prairie, Paul Engels. You know, that would have been cool, but that's not us, right? We live in a very, but, but it's also, on the other hand, we need to be aware of it, right? How does God choose to reveal himself to us? Through his word. Through his word, not through his picture right? So, you know, we have things like VeggieTales, right? We have things like The Chosen, right? We have uh, 
you know, things like, you know, movies about, you know, we got Charlton. When, when you think of Moses, it just, if you were, well, if you're my age or older, if you think of Moses, who do you think of? If I say, give me the first name that comes to mind when you think of Moses, you'd say Charlton Heston, right? It's like it, it, those, those things are inseparable in our minds once we've captured that visual. And so I'm just saying, I'm not saying don't watch The Chosen. I'm not saying don't watch Veggie Tales. I'm not saying, you know, don't do anything. I'm just saying be aware of these things. God chooses to real, reveal himself through his word. And I like this description because Ezekiel goes out of his way to say, well, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like something that's hard to describe. And it's not like he can text us a, a photo of it. And I appreciate that, right? God could have worked it out, so he revealed himself. Like he, God could have given us a Bible full of pictures, right? Think God's big enough to do that? He could have done that. He could have given us, we could open Ezekiel chapter 1 and say, yep, there it is. Look at the picture. But he didn't. And so I think it's important that we kind of recognize that. Part of that is God is bigger than what we can envision. And it should be that way. As soon as we think we've got God yeah, I can describe him pretty well. We're in dangerous ground. And so it's, it's, it's right that as we read this, we're like, wow, okay, all right? So what I just read, Behold, I looked, a whirlwind is coming out of the north, great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. Brightness was all around it, radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. So the best commentator, commentary on Scripture is other Scripture, right? Ezekiel sees a cloud engulfed by fire. Now, if you're a good Jewish person, you've read Jewish history, you know about that, you think cloud, fire. You might think of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led the Israelites through the desert for those 40 years, right? And so this is a picture of the presence of God. Is this God himself? No, not really. This is a picture of the presence of God. And he says, a whirlwind is coming. It's coming out of the north. Interestingly, out of the north is kind of a picture, uh, really, of uh, judgment. You know, the Babylonians came out of the north. Ezekiel chapter 38 uh, in yet future time, Russia and its allies are going to come out of the north, right? And uh, that's going to, we'll get to that, well, 37 chapters from now, right? But specifically, you know, I always thought, out of the north, out of the north. And then I heard, uh, well, we keep, we keep talking about Damien Kyle. I heard Damien Kyle a, few, uh, a year or so ago. Because in my mind, I always think, Israel's here, Middle East is here. Where do you think Russia, well, okay, so you're like this. Middle East is here, where do you think Russia's at? You think it's way over here, right? East, right? You go home and look on an atlas, and you draw a ruler straight straight north out of Israel and you go up on the map, guess where you come to? Moscow. Moscow. Ezekiel 38. Russia comes out of the north. Right? 
605, 597, 586 BC, Babylon comes out of the north. And so judgment is, is part of this whole picture. And so anyway, you see this thing. So there's this, there's this fire cloud Sometime, somehow, you know, described with, you know, the word like and likeness quite a bit. And so somehow we're getting sort of a, a glimpse into spiritual things, a glimpse into somehow the presence of God. And it gets even more complicated. Verse 5, also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of the calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. See the word like so much here? He's, he's, he's sort of struggling to describe it. It's so magnificent. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides, and each of the, each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. So this is kind of weird. So we got this cloud with fire, and somehow in the midst of this, from within it, comes these four living creatures. Now, you know, are these somehow four representations of God? We'll just flip over real briefly to chapter 10 of Ezekiel verse 15. I'm sorry, starting in verse 14. You there? You should be there. You only had to turn like four pages. Chapter, chapter 10, starting verse 14. Each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second the face of a man, the third the face of a lion, the fourth the face of an eagle, and the cherubim were lifted up. This was the living creature I saw by the river Chebar. Okay? So what did Ezekiel see here in this, uh, these four living creatures? Cherubim. Cherubim. Go down to verse 20. This is the living creature I saw under the, God, uh, under the God of Israel by the river Chebar, and I knew they were cherubim. In the, and just so you know, in the Hebrew... Uh, in, in English, we add the letter S at the end of most words, most nouns, to give us a plural, right? Right? You might say um, dog. Plural would be dogs, right? Everybody with me? Okay, good. In Hebrew, I am is that. Like a cherub is one, cherubim would be plural, all right? So if you see M, uh, oftentimes that's, that's the plural in the Hebrew. Anyway, just so you know that. So cherubim. So Ezekiel tells us in chapter 10 that these four living creatures are cherubim. Now cherubim in the scripture seem to always show up sort of guarding or protecting, but protecting might not be a, the right word, the presence of God, because the presence of God can stand on his own, right? But somehow, cherubim are always there sort of guarding the presence of God. Fair enough? The first mention we see is in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned. They get kicked out of the garden, Garden of Eden. Why do they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Because God's mad at them? No. They get kicked out of the Garden of Eden 
because there were two trees in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they ate, and what was the other one? The tree of what? Life. The tree of life. And God knew that if Adam and Eve, in their fallen condition, would eat of the tree of life, they would be perpetually in that fallen condition. Can you imagine? Like, if this life, this world, this fallenness, our sin nature, like we're stuck with it eternally, right? That'd be bad. That'd be way bad, right? So what did God do? He, he shut off, he, he, he kicked them out of the garden so they would not eat of the tree of life and live forever in that fallen state, right? And when he did, he put cherubim in front of the, the garden to guard it, right? So they're sort of guarding, in a sense, uh, the Garden of Eden. We see uh, mentioned in the um, Ark of the Covenant. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, also referred to as the mercy seat, was covered with engraved cherubim, right? To guard, you know, and the Ark of the Covenant was to the Jewish people uh, representative of the very presence of God, right? You may recall how holy it was when... Um, David's marching the troops into, or marching the people into Jerusalem, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the oxen start to stumble, and the guy Uzzah, remember Uzzah, he puts out his hand to, to kind of steady the Ark of the Covenant. How'd that go for him? He died, right, that day. Because uh, the Ark of the Covenant was so holy, it was representative of the presence of God. And so the lid, the mercy seat of that was in a sense, guarded by these cherubim. Uh, cherubim were embroidered on the veil of the temple that would separate the holy place from the, from the holy of holies. The holy of holies was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where only the high priest would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement, and nobody else would dare go in there. That presence, that place was guarded by cherubim. So cherubim, as we see through the Scripture, are sort of guarding the presence of God. So you got this cloud, uh, cloud with fire, and in this you got these four living creatures that that Ezekiel tells us are cherubim. Everybody got a clear picture of it so far? Like, sort of. As for the likeness of their faces, we'll get a little more clarity now. Each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had a face of an ox on the left side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. Their wings stretched upward. Two wings of each one touched one another. And two covered their bodies. And so that's not really... That's just more complicated, right? But each had four faces. Some people, and again, you can speculate on this a little bit. Some say this is four aspects of God's creation, right? Man would have been God's highest uh, creature, right? King of the beasts would be the lion. King of the domesticated animals might be the ox. King of the birds might be the eagle. These are all pretty uh, majestic aspects of God's creation. We don't know for sure. Interestingly, if you put your thumb here in Ezekiel, flip over to Revelation, chapter starting in verse 1 again scripture interprets scripture right so we want to know is there any place else in scripture where uh, somebody where a human gets sort of access to 
to spiritual things, perhaps even, you know, in some sort of way, the presence of God. Revelation chapter 4. After these things, I, John, John speaking here, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I'll show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow all around the, around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. So this throne, we can, we can uh, infer, was, was God sitting on the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the, sea, before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures. How many creatures did Ezekiel see? Four living creatures. Maybe they're the same. Full of eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. Again, John uses the word like. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's a great picture. And so Ezekiel's four faces, if you will, were a lion, a man, an ox, and an eagle. John's were uh, a lion, a man, a calf, and an eagle. We don't know if maybe they're just seeing the same thing that they describe differently. Uh, It's hard to say. But anyway, it's just kind of interesting that what Ezekiel sees is a little bit similar, at least, to what John sees in his description. It may be that they saw the same, the same four living creatures um, surrounding uh, the presence of God. So we don't know, but it's at least interesting. Verse 12, and each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go. And they did not turn when they went. And so notice this, they moved straight and this is repeated from up in verse 9, says each one went straight forward. They move straight, I think indicating that there's no random movements here, right? These four living creatures, they move, and when they move, they move straight. No, no random lack of direction, no chaos. They're very deliberate, very intentional, and specifically they're submitted to the leading of the Spirit. So these are not God, right? These four living creatures, they're cherubim. We know that from what Ezekiel told us. We also know here that they're not God because they're submitted to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, okay? Where God, where the Holy Spirit leads, that's where they go. Verse 13, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning, and the living living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. So these creatures are awesome. They're powerful. There's lightning flashing all over the place. Now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. And so... 
if you're trying to envision this, you got these four living creatures, each of them have four faces, and they got, each of them have wings, and the wings are kind of flapping, and there's flashes of lightning, and somehow, beside each of these things is a wheel. Each living creature with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of barrel, and all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. So some say that, you know, this is how they would have gone. They could have gone different directions based on, you know, there's a wheel within a wheel. Who knows? When they moved, they went toward any one of four directions. They did not turn aside as they went. And as their as for their rims, they were so high that they were awesome, and their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. You recall in John's vision, these four living creatures were full of eyes, kind of a picture of, of wisdom. When the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, because there the Spirit went. And the wheels were lifted up together with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. So each living creature had a wheel, and then another wheel, maybe at a perpendicular angle, because it says they went you know, straight in any one of four directions. The wheels were so high that they were awesome. Each wheel was full of eyes, just like the living creatures in Revelation. And notice it says that they went wherever and whenever the Spirit directed. They went wherever and whenever the Spirit directed. Now, we are human beings, right? Just like I said, we were born at this time in this place. We're also not angels. We're not cherubim. We are human beings on planet Earth at this point in time, at this place in time, for a reason. But I think we could take a lesson from these cherubim that they go whenever and wherever the Spirit leads them. Right? We talked at the beginning about Ezekiel, personally probably had hopes and dreams of one day being a priest, of putting on the, you know, the cool robe, and everybody saying, whoa, you're the priest, sir. We as believers, we as human beings, often have hopes and dreams. Do you have expectations of what your life's going to be like a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now? I mean, do we all sort of have at least maybe some image in our mind? Maybe some hope in our mind. Maybe some expectation in our mind. But we, and that's, you know, you can plan for that, right? That's all fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's wise to plan for the future. But there needs to be an element, a, a predominant element, where we are willing to be led by the Holy Spirit whenever and wherever He goes. Remember the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night we talked about, right? This is what uh, Exodus tells us about this. Chapter 40, verse 36 and 37 says, Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. You like that? I like that. 
Picture you're in the desert. You know, you're, you're, you're one of three million people, two or three million people in the desert, wandering for 40 years. You set up camp, right? I mean, we camped a couple times. I think when we just had four or five kids, right? Setting up camp. That's why we don't do it anymore, right? Imagine setting up camp of three million people, including the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. You get it all set up, you're just... All right, we're going to chill here for a little bit. Camp, right? And the cloud moves. <laughs> You're like, really? Oh, man. Right? And then on the other hand, maybe the cloud's moving. And, you know, also like family vacation, right? Cloud's been moving, let's say the cloud's been moving for, for a month. What are three million people going to say? Like family vacation. Are we there yet? Right? Are we there yet? We used to always say, another 20 minutes. We'd say that for hours. Anyway. We got a lot more integrity now than we did then. You know, this pillar of... Imagine, think about this now. Why do kids say, are we there yet? And let's be honest, we're all just big kids, right? Why do we say, are we there yet? Because we want to know how it all plays out. We want to know what's for dinner tonight. We want to know what's for breakfast tomorrow. We want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. We want to know how it's going to roll out at work. And it throws us a curve if it doesn't roll out like we hoped or we expected or we wanted, right? If we're honest with ourselves. Imagine going through the desert for 40 years with no, no answers to the question, are we there yet? When God decides to stop, the cloud stops, the fire stops. Time to set up camp. If God says, time to go, it moves, right? And it says, I love this, whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in what? All their journeys. They were all in when it was time to go. They might not have been happy about it. They probably whined about it. They whined about everything else. They probably whined about it, but they went onward in all their journeys. And this is what these four living creatures are doing, right? Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. Whenever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. Can that be said of us? Can that be said of us? That we are, number one, aware of the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and number two, willing to follow. And I'm speaking to me as well, by the way, right? And sometimes, you know, there's those two components of that. Am I aware and am I willing, right? Sometimes I might, I wonder at least as I'm just thinking through this in my head, I wonder if I'm kind of like, maybe sometimes we are like, mm, I don't hear that, 
Mm, I don't hear that leading of the Holy Spirit, right? Maybe we can drown ourselves out so much that we don't hear the leading of the Holy Spirit. We're not sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit because we really just would rather lean on our own understanding. And again, I'm speaking to myself. So these four living creatures, wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. Because there the Spirit went. And let me tell you, the greatest blessing is wherever and whenever the Spirit would lead us. Verse 22, the likeness of the firmament. So now we're going to talk about a firmament. Above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. And under the firmament, their wings spread out straight one toward another. Each one had two which covered one side, and each one had two which covered the other side of the body. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. A voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. And so over the creatures was a firmament, which is really like an expanse in the sky. And somehow under the firmament, their wings moved. And when they did, it sounded like the voice of the Almighty, like the noise of an army, like the noise of many waters. So very impressive. And then um, when, whenever they stood, they would let down their wings. So you got this cloud fire thing. You got these four living creatures and, you, and, and wheels beside the four living creatures that reach all the way up to heaven. And then somehow over that, you got this firmament. And above the firmament... Verse 26, over their heads was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. So a throne sounds like something God might sit on, right? And this is a very sort of, you know, Ezekiel said here in, uh, at the very beginning that he saw visions of God. So perhaps this is the throne of God. He said, an appearance like a sapphire stone on the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw as it were the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw as it were the appearance of the fire with brightness all around, like the appearance of a rainbow in, the, in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So, he is describing somehow the, and again, notice all the qualifiers. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Okay, so somehow above the firmament, above the four living creatures, above the cloud, of, uh, the, the cloud with, with fire is this throne with somehow the glory of the Lord on this throne. It's reasonable that it would appear like a man. Um, Jesus was a man, right? Jesus was fully God. He was a man. Man is created, what, in God's image. So that's not, that's not a, uh, too much of a stretch. But it's important to notice that he, how much he qualifies this description. 
And then finally, I want us to see this, what I think is probably the most important sentence in this chapter. All right? So if you zoned out, I understand. It's kind of a weird description, right? Suffice to say, everything we've, said, we've, we've read about so far is a description that's really beyond our full understanding. But we can understand this part, the very last sentence in the chapter. So when I saw this, when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. What did he do when he saw this thing? Did he say, wow, that's cool. Did he say, why do those wheels turn that direction? Did he say, you know, Isaiah saw kind of a weird thing. How come mine is different than his? How come my description is different than Isaiah's? You know, when Isaiah saw these things, uh, one of the, some creature came and put a coal of fire on his tongue. How come you not do that to me? Did Ezekiel do anything like that? What did he do? He fell down. Period. He fell down. Flip back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah's description is much less uh, detailed, but I think the idea is similar. Isaiah chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, okay, high and lifted up. Ezekiel's, you know, throne was above the firmament. So Isaiah seeing a, uh, the Lord, he says, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, two he flew. And one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. So seraphim is just like another type of angelic being, right? Interestingly, these seraphim say the same thing that John's uh, creatures said in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And so he sees this, and what does Isaiah say? Does he analyze it? Does he compare it to anybody else's? Does he try to figure it out? No, he says, so I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. You see this? What's Isaiah's response? Humility. What's Ezekiel's response? Humility. John, when he sees the vision of Jesus, chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 1, when he sees, sees this picture that's, that's described as Jesus, what does he do? He falls down. He falls down. What's our response to really seeing any kind of, uh, what, what's, our, what's our response? What should be our response to any degree of insight into the presence of God? 
or the majesty of God or any aspect of the character of God, we should fall on our face in humility. What do we as religious beings tend to do? Well, we tend to argue about our theology. We tend to rest in our national pride a little bit. You know, God, God's not going to deal with us, right? We're Christians. We tend to do lots of things other than fall down and worship and say, woe is me, I'm a sinner. You know, again, God reveals himself to us, what? Through his word. We need to understand the nature of God as much as we can, right? And you've heard me say this before. If, I'm gonna, if, if my job is to encourage us, and myself included, to walk through this life in, and again, I don't want to sound religious, but in a way that a godly man should walk. If I'm going to do that, what should be my technique for doing that? For myself or for you? What should be my technique? To give us a list of things. You know, if you do these top if you do these top things, top ten things, and avoid these top ten things, you're gonna be good. Is that how it works? No. What should be our thing? Get to know the person of God. He reveals himself through his word, and he's given us his presence, his 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 deity became fully man, right? So study the person of Jesus Christ and the nature of God revealed in the Scripture. And I believe with all my heart, I, I, this is an anchor for me. If I can get my head around that, and again, this is my challenge for myself as well as any of us. If I can get my head around who God is, then all of a sudden... All entitlement goes away, right? All selfishness goes away. Is Ezekiel consumed with world events? There's a lot of world events in Ezekiel's day. He described them in the first three verses. There's a lot of world events going on that are pretty kind of crazy, a little stressful, right? When he gets a, a picture of the presence of God, does he care about any of that? I have to ask myself, how much of my time and energy is consumed with cultural events, with following the news feed, with what's going on, with how we all navigating through this life, right? I mean, I'm being honest, right? And how much should be consumed with, wow, God, you're amazing. You're so awesome. You're so good. And guess what? When I can take my brain back to that, my life, my actions, my attitude will follow. Right? All this grand description, 
Ezekiel knows that he's not given us a complete description. He's saying, well, it's kind of like this, it's kind of like that. I know it's hard to describe, but it's really kind of like the sort of the kind of the presence of the kind of the glory of the Lord. But what we do know is this, the most absolute, unambiguous statement in the whole, in the whole chapter. So when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard a voice of one speaking. So he saw the presence of God. He experienced the presence of God. He responded to that. And now he's ready to be directed. Right? God's going to have a whole lot of chapters left of talking to Ezekiel. Right? God's going to give him a lot of instruction. But God starts that instruction by revealing his presence to him. Revealing who he is. And that's how he handles us. You know, if we saw God somehow like this, and we were all supposed to describe him, we'd all have slightly different descriptions because none of us could adequately describe him. But the more we get to know him, the more we respond like we should be. So, we don't have to draw a picture of him, right? But just imagine all that God has done for us, all that God has revealed himself to be for us, and then we respond accordingly, like Ezekiel, like Isaiah, like John, like so many others that have gone before us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're so amazing. We thank you that you are holy. We thank you that you're sovereign. We thank you that you are over all of history, including our own present day history. We thank you that you are over the details of our lives including what are sometimes our man-made hopes and dreams. And yet, through all that, Lord, we are mindful and so thankful that you love us. That you came to earth as the man, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And Lord, we're thankful that we can have fellowship with you, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, help us to focus on you more and help us to focus on ourselves and our circumstances less and help us to respond accordingly with lives of devotion to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.